So Ephesians 2, just a little background to it so we all kind of know what Ephesians is. It was written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a city that would have been, in, is now in modern-day Turkey. Um, so it's in that same area um, as um, like the Middle East kind of area. That's where Turkey's at if you don't know. And so that's Ephesus was a modern, is a city from that area. It was written in the 60s, so the original 60s, not the 60s of Woodstock 60s, but the actual 60s. And Paul wrote it, and he wrote it as a circular letter to be passed around from church to church. Um, Paul would have written it to the church at Ephesians and to the people there. He wrote it while he was under house arrest in Rome at this time. And he had a connection with Ephesus because he had spent three years there earlier in his life. During the book of Acts, if you read it, Paul spent about three years in the city of Ephesus. They worshiped a goddess called Diana in the city of Ephesus with a lot of idol worship and pagan worship there. And Paul had such a great influence through sharing the gospel message in the city of Ephesus. So many people turned away from idol worship and began turning to the Lord that the people who profited off the idol worship got together and started a riot to run Paul out of town. And the, the grace of God and the message of the gospel was having such an impact that people came together and said, we got to get this guy out of here. He's basically going to bankrupt our businesses. And so they led a riot and got Paul ran out of town. Okay, Ephesus is the same city that Paul wrote the letter to in 1 Timothy. If you were with us, we studied through the entire book of 1 Timothy on following instructions. But 1 Timothy was written to the leaders of the church at Ephesus because the church had begun to struggle again. Whereas the actual letter of Ephesians would have been more in a generic sense written to the people of Ephesus and then also as a circular letter to go around. But it's the one in the same church. Just 1 Timothy was written a few years later. So that kind of gives us an idea of what's going on with this book of Ephesians. And then I want you to think, how many of you have ever entered into a negotiation for something, negotiated whatever, real estate, um, contract for job? Yeah, some of you are realtors, so you do that frequently. Okay, one of the key elements of entering into negotiation is you have to have something to negotiate with. Okay, if you enter into negotiation, you either have to have money to get something, maybe it's for a job, and you have to have a unique skill set and ability and talent that allows you to negotiate for a contract or a raise, or you have to have property, whatever it is, you have to have something to negotiate with. You don't come to a negotiating table with nothing and say, I have absolutely nothing, now give me a million dollars for my nothingness. That's not how negotiations work. Okay, a few years ago in 2007, I want to use an illustration to understand this idea of negotiation. Um, the Raiders drafted someone number one overall in the first round of the NFL draft. His name was Jamarcus Russell. Okay, and they drafted him with the first overall pick in 2007. And right out of college, this guy held out for more money. He had never played a snap in the NFL. And he says, I'm so good, I need more money. Not ever, ever playing. And so he ended up getting a six-year, $68 million contract. Not a bad day's work. Six years, $68 million for never having played it down. Here's what he did in the NFL. He went 7-18 and 18 as a starter, which means he only won seven games in his career. And in his entire career, he threw 18 touchdowns and 23 interceptions. And I was thinking to myself, all of us in this room are only 18 touchdowns behind an NFL quarterback who got $68 million. I would not throw touchdowns for a lot less than $68 million if it was that. I would not throw touchdowns for like half a million dollars a year, and they could get off cheap with me. They paid him $68 million for this. He convinced the team he was worth this much money, and he never produced or performed at that level. And we can look at those contracts and say, how do they pay them so much when they're clearly not worth it? And it's so easy sometimes in sports, whatever that sport is, to see that this guy's overpaid. Or we can look at actors and actresses who get $25 million for a movie, and the movie stinks and flops. And we say, how do they get so much money? They're not worth it. 
And today I want us to get this idea that when we enter into a negotiation or we think we enter into a negotiation with God, we come to the table with nothing. If we laugh at the skill set of a player in the NFL demanding more money, how comical is it that we come before God thinking we have something to offer him and to negotiate with? We come before him empty-handed, having nothing. The reality, though, is people oftentimes come before God and say, God, I'm gonna, I'll give you this if you'll do this. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And we negotiate with God. And I want us to start understanding this as we're going to look in Ephesians 2. Man, we don't come before God with anything. There's nothing we have on our behalf that we can negotiate with him for. We, there's nothing within us that warrants his grace. The, the simplicity of the gospel is we're not worthy of it, but yet he still gave us this thing called grace. And if we just start to understand God's sovereignty, we realize we truly do come to the table with nothing. We say, God, I'll give you my life if you do this. God could take your life from you if he so choose today. Or God, I'll give you my money. I'll give you this. A, a God who owns it all, who has it all, is jealous or in need of your money. Or God, I'll give you my time if I do this. A, a, a sovereign, eternal God who looks at your life as but a vapor says, oh, I, I really need your time. We come to the table with nothing to offer God. We negotiate from a place of nothingness. And in fact, it's not a negotiation. I want you to listen now in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and listen to its description of us and who we were. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 paints this grim picture of who we are. The first few verses of this don't, they're not the self-esteem verses, okay? It's not like, boy, I'm a great person. No, it's saying, you are not a good person. We are dead in our sins, deserving wrath by our very nature opposed to God and deserving his wrath. And if you read Paul's letters, if you start in Romans and just kind of progressively read through them, you find this theme throughout all of them. It's we're not okay. We're not all right. We're sinners. We're messed up people. The most famous of these verses is Romans 3.23 where it says basically we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We just read one in Ephesians. We're all at this same point. We all are messed up people. No one in here ha ever had it all together or ever will have it all together. We're broken. And then there's this idea that we're dead in our sins, it says. And so I want to look at two points of this real quick. We're dead in our sin. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by our very nature. Um, this is a harder one to accept because sometimes we want to believe people are inherently good. We look at sweet, innocent babies that aren't so sweet and innocent, and we think, boy, they're pretty good. I've got four of them. They're not good. And you've had some probably, and you know they're not good. If you haven't had any, you're going to find out. They're not inherently good. They inherently bite their brother or sister. They take from others. They can be a little messed up. All right, and Rome, Romans 5 tells us this. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through this sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Psalm 51.5 says this when David speaking. He says, um, basically, sinful, or surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the very moment he was born, he was sinful. From the moment of conception, he was sinful. 
So I don't need to do too much of a science lesson here. But the very moment mom and dad got together and conceived David, he's saying, I was sinful from that point forward because Adam sinned. And so because of Adam's sin, it's been passed down to all of us. And so by our very nature, we're sinful. There's nothing inherently in us that makes us not sinful. Uh, Calvin said it this way, while we remain in Adam, we are entirely devoid of life. Referencing the fact that as we remain in Adam, or as we're children of his, basically, we're naturally sinful. Okay, so we're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. And this is an easier one to understand and accept sometimes, because we can see it in our own lives. It's not that hard. If we look at the laws and statutes of God, it's pretty easy to identify that we're sinners by choice. Um, I could say, like, in the New Testament, it says, whoever looks on a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. So I could ask the question, how many guys have ever done that? And, and if we didn't raise our hands, then we'd be guilty of lying on top of guilty of the adultery in our heart. Or we could say, how many of you have ever told a lie? How many of you have ever gossiped? How many of you have ever slandered, had lust, been greedy, had malice in your heart? So it's real easy to identify quickly that we're, we're not just sinners by birth, but we're sinners by choice. And so that kind of sets it up where we're at. We are dead in our sin. It's like a double whammy. If you say you're this really good person who've never sinned, I would contest that you're a liar for saying that you've never sinned. But even if, let's say, you had, you, you'd lived basically this perfect life, you were still a sinner by nature, and you were still dead in your sins, as Romans 5 teaches us. And so how, whatever side you're going to go, you, we're trapped. We're dead in our sins. And so why do we need to understand this? Because this is kind of a basic point of our faith before we can get to the good news of the gospel. And there's also this thing that's going around right now, and it's been around for a long time. It's nothing new, but it's this idea of secular humanism. And basically, this elevates the goodness of man. And the actual definition of it is this, an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems problem with that is, as it states in its very definition, is it takes out the supernatural. It takes out God. It basically says, at our core, we're good. At, it would say that at my core, Clifton Curry is a good person, and I need no God to, to improve upon that. Okay, and so this runs exactly counter to what the scripture teaches, where scripture tells us we're sinners and we're dead in our sins. This would run in opposition to that and say, no, we're good people. We don't need God. We don't need any help from the supernatural because we're okay. And that is not the truth, and we, we go against that. And so this belief takes out God from the equation, and we don't want to do that. And so, in fact, we have to understand kind of this negative thing about ourselves before we can understand the good that God did. We need a Savior because we're dead in our sins. Not, I don't need someone as a self-help book. I'm not just a good human being who just needs some direction in the right path. I don't need a self-help guru. Like, I've got it like 95% figured out, and if I just had a self-help guru get me the rest of the way there, then I'll be good enough on my own. Unfortunately, this has kind of morphed into Christianity even today, and we see that a lot of times, is that we're really good people, and I just need a little help and guidance from someone to kind of steer me in the right direction, because I'm naturally good, and I'm going to do all these right things, and if someone just kind of helps me along the way, then, I'm a real, then, then I'll have it all together. You don't need a self-help guru. We need a savior. We're dead in our sins. We're not doing a pretty good job on our own. And so we have to accept the ugly reality about ourself and our own heart and being dead in our sins before we can see this great truth and great reality of God's grace, graciousness to us. The Bible points out time and again our merit is not what makes us worthy. We come with nothing before God, and yet we find time and again God was gracious to us. 
So this can be very humbling for some of you, or it can be very uplifting. If you're the person who thinks, I'm pretty good, I've got it all together, look at me, this should be a humbling reality that you don't. You were dead in your sin. And if you think, man, how could God love me? How could, how could I stand before a holy God? Look at all these things I've done. Man, this could be uplifting understanding we were all dead in our sins. Yours may look different than mine, but I was just as dead in my sins as you were in yours. And we all come before, at one point in time, we were dead in our sins before God. And this could be just this idea that, man, I could turn to him and he will be gracious to me. And fortunately for us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is not the whole story. As often as it is with Paul, he kind of sets, paints this picture of what happened and then what's going on. So Paul's writing in the past tense in Ephesians 2, if you notice that at the very beginning. And now he's going to remind us what God did for us. And I love these because Paul does this many times. And I'd like to do a series basically called this, The, the Famous Butts of the Bible. Because there are some real famous butts in the Bible, and this is one of them, all right? Paul sets this extreme picture up, and he basically says, look at you. You are sorry, rotten dogs. But he doesn't ever leave us this there. He always transitions. He does it in Romans sometimes. He, uh, John does it in First John. There's all these great transitions that happen. And so it would be like me using this extreme illustration just to, just to paint a picture. Know that I'm joking now, so none of you come talk to me afterwards. Like if I said, like, I was going to tr- come to church today and kill all of you. But, that's a pretty important but, isn't it? That's a big transition, okay? But instead, I thought I'd give you a million dollars each for showing up at church today. Now, neither of those is true, so don't wait around for your check, because you'll be waiting a long time for that check from me. Okay, but Paul sets this, this extreme polar opposites. We deserved wrath. We were dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do on our own to warrant God's grace. And then he transitions with but. And those are, man, key words, little words, but it doesn't end for us. So he says this, we're dead in our sins. We're deserving wrath. But because of, God's great, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So I want to zoom out on this just for a second. Not, not literally, unless you have trouble seeing. You don't have to literally zoom out. Kind of figuratively zoom out on this passage. In the first one through three, you get this idea that we're not good people. If you just kind of scan through that, you can pick up on that. It talks about you, and it doesn't speak flattering of you or me. I'm included in this all plural you. But then on four through nine, if you kind of just look at it from the bigger perspective and bigger picture, it starts to talk about God a lot and what he did through his grace, through Jesus Christ on the cross. And from this bigger perspective of the gospel, I think sometimes we we miss it because we focus so much on individuals. And, and, And so I want you to hear me on this before you think I'm crazy here. Oftentimes we elevate individuals in the church because we see a major life change or a major transition in their life. And in doing that, we begin sometimes to worship individuals and what they've done and what they've changed rather than worship the God who was gracious to them and allowed them to be changed. Okay, and while it's great to see 
transform lives, and we should be praying for God's grace to be shown to people and to be revealed to people and that we see this grace come alive in people. Our focus should not terminate on an individual person. Our focus of our worship in the gospel is this kind of, it's, it's a bigger picture of God is at work in all of this. And again, I don't think it's wrong for people to share what God's doing in their life. I just think we've got to be careful to guard ourselves, not to ever elevate one person above the message of the gospel. Because see, in and of myself, I'm a sinner, dead in sin, deserving wrath. It was God's grace that transformed me. And if you're honest about yourself, you were dead in your sins, deserving wrath, and it was God's grace that transformed you. So whenever we share, whenever we speak, and whenever we have someone come up and share a testimony with us, hopefully and ultimately the glory and the praise all reflects onto God and his graciousness to us because ultimately people are going to fall and people are going to fail time and again. And if you ever elevate one person up too much, eventually you're going to see them fall. And that's just the reality of life. We're all going to sin. We're all going to mess up. But if we lift up God's grace and the way he's merciful and compassionate to people who fall, and so that's, that's never going to fail, and that's never going to disappoint. And so in the midst of looking at people and these individual life changes, may we keep a bigger picture and a bigger lens of the message of the gospel, that God is continually gracious. He's continually gracious to all of us, and all people need to hear that message. So just, I hope we can kind of get this bigger view, but now let's zoom back in on this isolated text here. So how does God respond? He responds out of love. And this is seen throughout Scripture, that he responded out of love. We see it here in Ephesians, the very beginning part of Ephesians 2, 4, right after we're told we were dead in our sins, deserving of wrath. He, we see that in uh, verse 4, it says, but, basically God responded out of love. Now, 1 John four ten says this, this is love, not that we loved God, and here's this word again, but that he loved us. Again, as we're dead in our sins, as we're incapable of loving God, deserving his wrath, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, at the moment, we didn't deserve it. When we were incapable of loving him, he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. He loved us first. He responded out of love. You can look at John 3, 16. He, he clearly states that again. God responded out of love for us. He did not just leave us in the state we deserved. Next, he responded out of his rich mercy. Great mercy was needed to pardon such a multitude of sins. And I just want you to think in your own life, maybe just recall a few quickly. How many times have you gone to God possibly for the same sin asking for forgiveness? Hundreds, thousands, multiple thousands that we, we turn back to God. God, I blew it again. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. It says he's rich in mercy. I want you to think about this. Parents, man, how many times do your kids mess up and do the same stupid thing over and over and over and over and over? I, I don't know about you, but, but mine do it. And, and I look at it from God's perspective, and I think, like, how many times have I been like my little kid that I, get, I can get so frustrated with? It's 100 degrees outside. And they run outside and leave our sliding glass door all the way open and my air conditioner's blowing full blast. And I'm thinking like, oh, cha-ching, 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 as that thing's wide open and I'm paying the electric bill. And I say, please shut the back door. Oh, Dad, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll remember next time. Next time's five minutes later. They run back in. Door's wide open. Please shut the door. I'm sorry. I forgot this time. And, and, and I just think like how impatient and how frustrated I get after like 90,000 times in one day of the door being open. And then I think, 
magnify that on a scale of just what's on earth right now, like over 6 billion people and who need mercy. And it just to, it, it, it's mind-boggling to comprehend God's mercy. We can see that he's rich in mercy to be able to forgive and pardon time and again, time and again. God, I'm sorry I messed up. God, I'm sorry I messed up. God, I'm sorry I messed up. Boy, he would have to be rich in mercy. Thank God that his nature and his characteristics are not like ours. Because if it was like me, the way I can get frustrated with my children, you guys would be in trouble. <laughs> I would be in trouble. All right? We need to be thankful that God is rich in mercy, and his character of mercy is so much beyond anything we can grasp or be capable of on earth. But he is rich in mercy, and he responded out of that. When we were dead in our sins, he responds with his rich mercy. He also responds by making us alive in Christ. Our spirit that was dead, as we saw in Romans 5 and Ephesians 2, is now made alive. If you wanted to continue reading sometime on your own in, Ephesians, or in Romans 5, it transitions from saying, while the transgression of one, basically while the sin of one brought death to many, the gift of one will be, bring grace and life to many. So while, excuse me, while Adam's sin brought death to us, Jesus' gift brings us life, okay? And we are made alive in Christ, so someday we can stand before God, not being dead in our sins, not being the people we are, not being deserving uh, uh, of his wrath, but being deserving of his love and his grace and entering into heaven because now we've been made alive in Christ. And then the last thing, it kind of ties it all up. It kind of just says this. He responds through grace and not based on our merit. You know, grace is this undeserved favor and kindness of God. We started with an illustration of a sports player negotiating a contract, and it's easy to figure out they don't always deserve that much money. But somehow some of us link our lives to thinking we're negotiating with an eternal God, and we're kind of bargaining with him over things. Man, we need to start grasping we come to God with nothing, just solely relying on his grace. The very definition of it says it's undeserved. I stand before God not deserving his grace, but he still gave it to us. And we, we should not be arrogant in what we think we are. The other problem with this is if we think we work for it and we think we can merit his grace and his favor in our lives, it, it, it's like the rat caught in the wheel. We run and we run and we run and we get nowhere. Because you know what? I'm trying to earn his grace and I'm trying to deserve his favor. But in all reality, I can't and I don't deserve it. And so I'm just stuck. And I'm stuck in this pattern because I'm trying to earn grace that's unearnable. The very definition says it's undeserved. And so we get caught in this idea and we end up being in this kind of religious-based guilt system of earning God's favor. Rather than understanding I can never earn it. So we run from God because we're guilty thinking I got to do something to earn his favor. I got to do something to earn his love. I got to do something to earn his compassion. And yet we look at our own hearts and realize, but I can't. And so we end up in this guilt-based system of religion that's never going to pr produce followers of Christ. It's going to produce people striving to be something we can never be. I can never be good on my own. I can never warrant God's favor through my actions because I'm inherently a sinner. And so instead of living in this kind of guilt-based trap of religion and saying, I've got to do this so God will do this for me, it's coming before God and saying, God, I got nothing. I need your grace. There's nothing I can offer you. God, will you be gracious to me? And so instead of running from God and guilt, we run to him knowing I have nothing. 
There's nothing I come to him to offer. And so I come before him with nothing, just saying, man, God, I'm relying on you. I'm relying on your grace. I can't offer you anything. The very definition is that you don't deserve it. We're going to watch a video clip now of a speaker who kind of sums it up a little more animated than I do. And he talks about this idea of, of needing God's grace. Year old single mother who's coming back from freshman college. I'm sitting next to a 26 year old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it. And I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up. And his big crescendo, I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him anger and it was all i could do not to scream out jesus wants the rose that's the point of the gospel that jesus wants the rose that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of god in him that while we were yet sinners christ died for us christ won you're not even teaching the basics of our faith Kind of this understanding, as we've said throughout our message today, man, we're all messed up. If that was us, we'd all be dirty roses coming before God. We're dead in our sins. And it's easy to cherry pick sins, and so it would be easy for me to, to cherry pick sins I don't struggle with. And I, I could hammer away at that and be like, oh, you're messed up if you do this, this, and this, all the while knowing the sin in my heart and, of course, avoiding that because then I elevate myself and I look a lot better. But if we just take the baseline truth is, wherever we're at, we were all dead in our sins at one time. If we're believers, we were dead in our sins. And, and yours look differently than mine when they're manifested, but that's where we were. 
And so I'm no better than anyone else. I'm no better than that girl he was talking about who was in extramarital affairs. I was a sinner dead in my sins deserving of God's wrath. And yet we find it illustrated time and again throughout the message. Broken people in need of a Savior. You know, that, that's who God is desiring to reach. He came to give us grace. To give us this undeserved favor. Paul, the guy who wrote this very letter we're studying today, so he wrote something that's in the Bible. Listen to what he says about himself. And if you think you, you're, you're better than Paul, uh, I don't know. Here we go. This is what Paul said about himself in 1 Timothy. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's like a baseline point of Christianity. We all get that. But listen to what he describes about himself. He goes on to say, of whom I am worst. Paul, who did more for the world in the New Testament as far as evangelism and bringing the gospel message to the world, says it about himself. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am worst. Do we have a proper view of ourselves? Do we walk around in arrogance thinking, God is lucky to have me? Look what I bring to the table. God, you really need me to be on your side. Or do we have a humble view of who we really were, people dead in our sins, who God was gracious to, and now we live out in this world's gracious humility? See, the world doesn't need any more arrogant Christians going to your workforce, thumbing your nose at the people you encounter. We don't, that, that does us no good. We need people who leave here and humbly enter a world realizing people are dead in their sins and they need to hear the grace message of Jesus Christ, that he came into this world to save sinners. See, the problem in the world isn't isolated issues. We always, we can, I can, again, we can cherry pick issues and there will always be issues and the world's never going to be right. The real issue is there's people who were caught in their sin and dead in their sin who need to know about Jesus and need this grace to be presented to them. And so when you leave here, I'd ask that if you're a believer in his, leave here with grace on your lips and grace in your life, knowing that the people you work with, yeah, they may talk differently. Yeah, they may do things a lot differently. And man, maybe they really are messed up. But so were you. If you were dead in your sins, you'd be messed up too still. And they need gracious humility encountering them, pointing them to a Savior who loves them and to a God who is gracious to them. Man, we don't need arrogance in our Christian walk. We need humility. That's how we kind of get labeled as hypocrites because we say, I got it all together because we cherry pick things that we do have together. Meanwhile, we turn a blind eye to the things we're messed up. If we just left here all acknowledging, I'm not, I don't have it all together, but God was so gracious to me. I think that can make a lot bigger impact in the world than, than arrogancy in Christianity. And the next thing is this. Maybe you're still at this point where you are dead in your sins. And you've never turned to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. And we're told it is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we can be saved. It is nothing you can do to deserve it. There is nothing I could do to deserve it. It was through God's grace that we are saved. And so I'd ask you this. This could be a great message of hope for you. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're caught up in, no matter what sin has just gripped you so strongly that you say, God couldn't love me, God couldn't forgive me. Repeated theme. It is not your merit that earns God's favor. None of us in here who are believers and who are saved deserved it. But yet God was gracious to us. 
So if that's you and you've never turned to Christ and put your faith in him, I would ask that maybe today you do that. Or maybe you speak to someone in this room. There's people all over this room. You don't need to catch a quote-unquote pastor or someone who's speaking. And if you know someone who's a believer in Christ, talk to them. Ask them to share Jesus with you. It doesn't have to be someone who, who, who gets a paycheck from a church to share Christ with someone. We can all do that if we're believers. And so I'd say, if you've never turned to him, that, that is a great message of hope. You know, many times the gospel ends with a focus on ourselves, unfortunately. And in reality, as we see, our focus should always be turned back towards God and what he did. It's this understanding that I was deserving of his wrath and that that's not what he gave me. I was the destroyed rose, and yet he still said, I want you. I love you. We were all broken, messed up people. And but for Jesus dying on the cross to take the place of our sins, we would all still be broken and messed up people. 